So today we're uh, doing Psalm 81. This is our next psalm in the list. We've got a few more to go this summer, and then we will uh, get back into Matthew and a few other things all along the way. So today we're going to talk about Psalm 81. One of the things we need to talk about with Psalm 81 is holidays. And who doesn't like holidays? You know, summer's kind of nice because we have a holiday on either end, right? We got Memorial Day on one end, Labor Day on the other, right smack dab in the middle. We have July 4th, right? And we even got a new holiday, Juneteenth, which we just started celebrating uh, as a federal holiday. So we've got all of these holidays over the summer. And they're all just, I mean, it's, it's great that we have them. It's, it's fun that we have them. But why do we have these holidays? Like, what is the purpose of them? Obviously, the name says holy days. That's where the, that's where the word came from. But a holiday is a day of remembering. It's a day of celebrating. Um, and for many people, it's a day off, which probably is the best part about a holiday, isn't it? Generally, these are meant to remember things. They're meant to have some time away from the regular day, but a holiday is meant to be that way. It's no surprise that here in America, our favorite holiday is Christmas by a whopping range. 48% of Americans um, think that Christmas is the best, and the other 52% are wrong. Um, And so Christmas is the one that Americans like best. The second most popular is Thanksgiving, but what's interesting is that it's the most popular with people over the age of 40. Under the age of 40, it's Halloween, and so Halloween is number two on the under 40 set, and Thanksgiving is number two on the over 40 set. Third, fourth place is the 4th of July, which just fits because it's the 4th, right? And then the fifth one is Easter, and all the rest are also ran. So those are our, kind of our holidays. Those are the holidays that we look forward to. What is the purpose of a holiday? Well, one of the things the holidays are meant to do is they're meant to be a time of rejoicing, a time of joy, of happiness, of fellowship, of getting together. Unfortunately, it's not always that case because some people have to work holidays, and we appreciate those that have to do that. Some people work in anticipation of the holiday. We all appreciate that on Thanksgiving, don't we? But a holiday is meant to be a time of coming together. It's meant to be not an individual, but a communal thing. The second thing we have with holidays is most of our holidays are some sort of remembrance. With the exception, we had 12 holidays this year um, in, in this calendar year. With the exception of New Year's, which is kind of a maybe, and Inauguration Day, and maybe Halloween, all the rest of them are remembering something that's happened in the past or remembering something somebody has done for us. So it's really interesting that our holidays are all historical. They're all things that remind us of something that has come. And isn't this like perfect for this psalm? Because all of the psalms that we've been looking at so far, if there was one word that fits with all of them, it's remember. It's remember because the Israelites were forgetting. They were always forgetting what God had done. Samuel Johnson once wrote, people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. And isn't that the case? We need to remember what we've already been taught. We remember what we already know, not be taught something new. I learned this as a teacher where you had to pretty much repeat something about 25 times before a student would get it one time, which is pretty typical because I think we're very much the same. But not only do holidays help us, we get this time to rejoice, we get this time to remember, but sometimes we remember things we don't necessarily like. If you think about your holidays, and I've talked about already how they're communal, sometimes the community, the, the family is broken. Sometimes the friendships 
are broken. And getting back together with a family can be hard. And so sometimes we remember things we don't want to remember, things that maybe we need to fix before we can have our relationships back together. Maybe it's a harsh word spoken to a sibling. Maybe it's a, a family rift. Other things that we remember we don't want to remember, sometimes it's things from our past. Maybe it's things we did in the past. Maybe it's things our country did in the past. Maybe it's things our relatives did in the past. Now, if we've confessed our sins, those, that guilt isn't on us anymore. And we don't necessarily have the guilt of all the people that came before us. But sometimes when we look at holidays, we remember things that weren't so good in the past. And hopefully that then helps us see our blind spots in the present so we can move out and see what the Lord has for us. And this is exactly where Israel finds themselves today. They keep forgetting what God has done for them in the past. They keep forgetting how God has been continuously there for them. And it causes them to then doubt him in the present. And so holidays hopefully will help us go a new direction. Now, I didn't just pull this holidays thing out of thin air, and I just wanted to talk about holidays, which isn't a bad thing. But this psalm was actually a song for a holiday. See, the, the Jews, the Israelites, did it right. They would have these humongous feasts, and they would have several of them a year. I think it was seven they had a year. These big, huge feasts where they'd come together, and they'd not spend one day, come on, Thanksgiving, that's like JV level. We're talking about a week-long feast. And that's not to forget the weddings. Weddings were like five-day things as well. And so you can imagine your year is full of feasting and getting together and celebrating. Well, this psalm was for the granddaddy of them all, feasts. In the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, they had two feasts back to back. The first one was on the first day of the seventh month. It was called the Feast of Trumpets. We refer to it today as, anybody know what it is called? Rosh Hashanah, which means head of the year, which is the New Year celebration. And the word trumpet actually probably means loud sound. And so this is what we all do on New Year's. Ours is, you know, December 31st. Theirs is September. But they get up and they celebrate the new year. So that's the first feast. Not to be outdone, 15 days later, we have the second feast that this psalm is about called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. This was a feast to remember what God had done in the wilderness. And literally what the people would do is they'd travel to Jerusalem, they'd stay outside the city, not in the suburbs in a nice hotel, but in a self-made tent. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I don't have the help of the tent I bought from Big Five, I'm sleeping under the stars. So they would actually make themselves a tent, they would stay outside, and they would say, this is what it was like in the wilderness where we wandered and then we got to enter into the promised land. So these are the two feasts that this psalm is about. But there's one more. Right smack dab in the middle of these two feasts is a day called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur means the Day of Atonement. This was the day that every year the high priest would go in and do a sacrifice for all the people of Israel. This was a very important day, and it points forward to what Jesus did on the cross several hundred years after this psalm is written. So this is a three-holiday thing right smack dab in the middle that they sing this song for. So this is like us singing joy to the world for Halloween, for Thanksgiving, and for Christmas. 
except for their holidays were a little more holy than our Halloween and Thanksgiving maybe, all right? So that's what this psalm is for. This psalm was, was sung. It was something they did. Why do I bring this up? Well, I'm not bringing this up because we're going to do a study of all the feasts of Israel. While that would be interesting, and I think there's some value to that, really I want to point you to what the Bible says about these holidays and these feasts. And we can see this in Colossians 2. Colossians 2.16 says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. The, 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 the feasts of trumpets was the new moon festival. That's what he's talking about. Then he says in verse 17, These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so what he's saying is all of these feasts, all of these holy days are pointing people forward to Christ. So now we are looking backwards through Christ onto these feasts, and we can see them more clearly than the people at that time did. And so today, as we look at this psalm, we're going to be looking backwards through Christ to try to understand what this psalm is saying. And I think we'll clearly see that this psalm speaks to us today. So here's our big idea. It's really wordy, but I'm going to break it into chunks, and you'll get each chunk over and over again. So if you're writing it down, I wouldn't even try right now. Write it down later, okay? So this is what it is. God's people are called to rejoice in God who has blessed them, to remember their past deliverance by the Lord, and to repent lest they forfeit, forfeit his blessing. So we're called to rejoice, we're called to remember, and we're called to repentance. We're called to repent. So this is the picture that we're looking at today. This is the three parts of this psalm. And they're things that we need to do continually. This feast was not a one-off. It was not a feast that people did just one time every once in a while. They just did it when they were a kid, and then they never had to do it again. This was something they did every year. There were all sorts of feasts. You know, we know about the Passover, and we know about Pentecost, and we know about some of these other ones, but this was the one you didn't miss. This was the big one, because it had these two right sandwiched together. And so Jews from all over the promised land would come and be at this feast every single year. So this is important that we get that. If we look back at the Psalms we've done recently, we've been doing a lot of laments. And it's this kind of lament and complaint and, God, where are you? And now in Psalm 81, God shows up. He actually shows up mid-Psalm. Right in the middle, a voice comes and Asaph goes, I, I heard a voice and I didn't know what it was. That's God. God breaks in in the middle of this worship service. This is, the, this is God's turn to talk. There's kind of a trajectory here. These psalms that we've looked at this year have started, and you can kind of see Asaph's turning a corner where he's starting to go, okay, yeah, I remember God in, verse, in, in Psalm 80 last week. He kind of turns and he goes, yeah, yeah, God, okay. And then in this one, God now steps up and says, here is the way it is. So let's get into it. Right at the top of your psalm, you'll notice it wasn't read by, by Ray because it's kind of a, a subhead where it says, Song of Asaph, and in there it says, with a gittith, G-I-T-T-I-T-H. This is a guitar-like harp um, from, the, from Philista. It's kind of a musical instrument. So it's like saying, hey, we're going to play it on a guitar. And so that kind of is interesting because that's what we're playing it on today at the end of the service when we sing it, is it on a guitar like we see here in Psalms. We've talked about how psalms are kind of different categories and types. This psalm doesn't really fit. It's not a lament. It's not a wisdom psalm. It's not Thanksgiving. It's something unique. And so this is really a prophetic psalm. 
Now, when we hear the word prophecy or prophetic, most of us go to the idea that it's predicting the future, right? That's a very small version, a small part of prophecy. Really, prophecy means pointing to the Lord's word, pointing back to the covenant. And so this psalm is doing that. This psalm is reminding the Israelites, hey, you know what? You made agreement with me as God. You need to keep up your side of the bargain because God will definitely keep up his side of the bargain. That's what prophecy means as we see it here. And there's one more thing before we get into it. This psalm is in the direct center of the book of Psalms. Some of you are going to go, wait a second, wait a second. There's 150 psalms, and I didn't do well in math, but I know that half of 150 is 75. This is not the psalm that's in the dead center. Well, you're right numerically, but you're wrong when it comes to how this is laid out. The book of Psalms is five sections, five books. This is the third book. We're right in the middle of the entire book of Psalms. The third book is Psalm 73 through Psalm 89. And the psalm that is in the exact center of the third book, which is in the middle of the psalm, is this psalm. And I think it's no surprise that in the exact center, numerically, in this psalm are the words, O Israel, if you had but listened to me, if you would listen to me. See, this is the heart of the problem with Israel. And if we're honest, it's the heart of the problem with us. If we would just pay attention and do what God says, our lives would be in a much better place, right? If you can't say amen, say ouch. So this is Israel. This is exactly the spot where Israel finds themselves. And this is why Asaph wrote the psalm. So here we go. The first thing we see is there is a call to rejoice in the God who has blessed them. A call to rejoice in the God who has blessed them. So here we go, verse 1, sing aloud to God our strength, shout for joy to the God of Jacob, raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp, blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day, for it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. So this is a call to rejoice in God who has blessed them. So he's saying, we're going to sing, we're going we're gonna to make noise. Notice it says, right, the very first line, sing aloud to God. Not sing aloud about God, not sing aloud for God, but we're singing to him. See, it's, it, we have to get past this idea that it's the how well of a singer we are that matters to God. What matters to God is, are we singing to God and where are our hearts when we do that? Notice it says, to God who is our strength. It's a, it's a position. It's a, it's a posture. It's a sitting there and going, this is how I'm viewing the world, and I'm singing in response to that. See, people of God have always been a singing God. Israelites sang everywhere they went, everywhere they went, and it's important. It's good for us to sing together in unison, all in one voice. When we don't sing, we're taking away part of what God is positioned here. This is God's body. This is the church is his body. And when we come together, if one part decides they're not going to participate, it ruins the whole thing. And so we are to sing together. We're to sing with all our might. Don't let anything get in the way is what he's saying. Sing aloud to God. Now, it's interesting. You'll say, but wait a sec. Hold on, hold on, hold on. 
you haven't heard me sing. When I sing, dogs start barking, babies start crying, right? And, and I think angels die, right? It's just everything is bad when I sing. Well, notice what it doesn't say here. It doesn't say sing well to the Lord. It sings sing loud. So I'm giving you absolute freedom to sing as loud as you want. And you're like, but you, know, you haven't heard me. Well, let me show you. The next line there, it says, shout for joy to the Lord. Now, that's a weird translation. That word shout means make a grating noise for the joy of the Lord. Now, when I think of grating noises, I think of pretty much my first year teaching. My first year teaching, I had blackboards. And you know what high school boys, not junior high boys, but you know what high school boys like to do? They like to go over with their fingernails, which they should have been trimming, and right down it. And that sound haunts me. It's a terrible sound. That's the sound that is being portrayed here in this psalm. Make a grating noise to the Lord for joy, because it's not about how we do it. It's about that we do it. Make a noise to the Lord. See, don't miss out. Our worship gatherings are to be joyous. Every single week when we come together, we sing the gospel. We start with songs that point to our need. We move to Christ's coming, and then we rejoice on that. And the only thing that you can control is, am I going to let myself rejoice in it? Everything else is outside of your control. Everything's outside of my control. Rejoice in the Lord. Take a posture of joy. Don't miss out on the gospel that's being portrayed in our music, just like we see here. Doesn't matter the song style. Doesn't matter how bad it sounds. Doesn't matter how bad we sound. We can joyfully sing to the Lord in any song. Now, the rest of the psalm isn't as positive as this. As a matter of fact, when God steps in, he reminds them of all the things he brought them out of and how they rebelled. But still, there is a picture here that sometimes it's joyful in worship, sometimes it's sorrowful, but it always turns to joy. Spurgeon said, why should Christians be a happy or a joyful people? It is good for our God. It gives him honor when we are joyful. It is good for us. It makes us strong. The joy of the Lord is my strength, Nehemiah 8.10. It is good for the ungodly when they see Christians truly glad. They long to be believers, and it's good for fellow Christians because our joy comforts those around us. When we are joyfully singing out to the Lord, it comforts everyone around us. Now, there is this weird thing here. In this passage, it says that it's a statute and a rule and a decree. Now, those sound like orders, and they are. This is, the, this is Asaph saying, you are supposed to be singing. You are supposed to be worshiping, right? I mean, these words, statute means a fixed requirement. A rule means a judgment or an authoritative statement. A decree means a testimony that you will follow. And so this entire thing is saying, you need to joyfully sing, which is interesting because people like Charles Swindoll say, if you don't rejoice you are being disobedient. So now we're into this kind of weird little place where we're being told, you must have joy, right? I mean, that, that's a really weird thing to be commanded to do. Feel better, feel good, smile, right? I don't think that that works all the time, but yet that's what the Bible tells us. So let's look at that. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's no difficulty on the minds of the writers and the spirit who who basically inspired this, saying, be joyful. You must be joyful. 
As a matter of fact, these festivals were prescribed. Go get together and celebrate. Do it. So they're told to do it. We're told to do it. We're, we're encouraged to do it. We're commanded to do it. Why? Well, I think first it's because it, it helps us break out of our individualism and thinking of me, me, me. If I start thinking about the people around me and I start looking at, I'm going to be joyful for those around me, it gets me off of myself. And isn't that our biggest problem is that we worry about ourselves more than we should. So we are to come together at times appointed and praise the Lord. And see, the thing is, this isn't about efforting it. It's not like, I got to be joyful. No, it's, Lord, I'm not joyful. Help me. And see, that's the thing about it in the Bible is that these commands are always there, but then God has sent his spirit to live in us to help us follow his commands. And that's the thing that's the best part about this. Trust in him, believe in him, and if our position, if our mindset is not one of joy, ask him to give us that joy. Ask him to give you the joy in worship, give you the joy in fellowship, the joy in your Bible study, the joy in obedience. Because many times we don't like being told what to do. But when God tells us what to do, he doesn't just tell us what to do, and it's like every other thing we're told to do. Instead, he gives us his spirit to give us the joy of doing it. So then we get this phrase, I heard a language I did not know. In the ESV, the one we read from, it's kind of weird because it goes right into verse 7 or verse 6, and it keeps going with I, and it kind of almost looks like God's going, hey, you're speaking a language I didn't know which doesn't work with what the rest of the Bible says. So there's some kind of nuances here in trying to figure it out. And, and really what this is saying is it's saying, this is Asaph talking, and he goes, right as I'm telling you guys we need to be worshiping and praising God, God showed up. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome that when we come to God in a place of rejoicing and a place of I'm going to get joy in the Lord, he shows up? Now, it's not a guarantee that every time we are rejoicing, he shows up, but here we see an example that he does, and I think that we need to get that. The message says, I hear a voice, a gentle whisper, one I never guessed would speak to me. And if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you know this happens. You know that you're in a worship service. It may not be the most memorable songs or the memorable singer or the songs you want, but the Lord is speaking. Many times we just get out of the way and boom, he speaks to us. And, and that's what we are craving and that's what we're seeing here. So do we want to hear from the Lord? Well, start with the position of rejoicing. All right, the next point we see is a call to remember their past deliverance by the Lord. A call to remember their past deliverance by the Lord. And see, this gets to the heart of why these festivals existed is we need to remember what the Lord has done for us. We need to remember what he's done. Look at verse 6. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Selah. See, the good news is that we are freed, and we see these passages... We see this passage, verses 6 and 7, that you've been relieved, you've been freed from your burden. That's the good news, isn't it? But it doesn't do any good if we don't know the good news and then act upon it. Because ultimately, you can be freed from bondage, but until you know and until someone tells you, you're still acting like you're enslaved. You're still acting 
like a slave. You're still acting that freedom is not there. Here's a good example of this. There's a story about a lady named Kathy Boone. Some of you might have heard this story. This just happened just recently. Kathy Boone was a a 40-plus-year-old lady who was living on the streets of Astoria. Turns out, because she was homeless, she had no connection with her family or the people that were looking for her. Now, why were people looking for her? It turns out she's an heiress, that she actually had a relative pass away and leave nearly $900,000 to her. And they looked for years for her. They could not find her until last January when she died. She died in a homeless shelter in Astoria. They did a search of her uh, fingerprints or something. They found some sort of identification on her, and they found out that this entire time, for the last five years, she'd been living in squalor, not knowing that she had enough money to change her life, nearly a million dollars waiting for her. And sadly, they, they don't know if there's any other relatives that will get that money. See, she didn't know that she had been freed from this want. She didn't know that she'd been set free. And she was waiting around, and nothing changed. See, there's three groups of people in Israel. And there's three groups of people in our church. The first group is they don't know that they're free. They don't know that they've been saved. These are the people stuck in Egypt. They're stuck in Egypt, and they don't realize that the the freedom is available. They're stuck in their sins. They haven't stepped into the inheritance of Christ's death. So that's the first group. And if you're a part of that, today is the day. Get your inheritance. Understand that you're free from the bonds of sin. The second group are those in the wilderness. Now, if you remember Israel, they were in Egypt, they left, and then they had to wander the wilderness. Now, why did they have to wander the wilderness? Because when they got out there, they started complaining and wanting to go back to Egypt. See, this is where some of us are as well. We got a little taste of God, but you know what? We're just going to keep, we just want what the world has. That's like Kathy Boone going, oh, I inherited almost a million dollars. I'm going to stay in the shelter. I'll I'll take some money every once in a while, but I'm just going to stay in the shelter. Or you know what? I'm just going to renounce my money because I I, want to stay in the shelter. This is where we are when we are like the wilderness, and this is where a lot of Christians are. We want just enough God and just enough Jesus in our life that we don't feel like we're going to go to hell, but then we live like we're going to hell, and we want nothing to do with any of his claim on our life. That's the wilderness wandering. And everybody that was in the wilderness over a certain age, died in the wilderness. Instead, tap into the fact that God is a spring of life and he wants to shower you with his inheritance. He wants to continually give you that inheritance. Don't just settle for a drip here and there. Bathe in it. And then third, the the group that has the right relationship with him and is tapping into that, there's more. There's, There's more. Keep going deeper. He is a bottomless well, a well that will continue to fill you up. And like we talked about last week, it's preparing you for the moment you step into eternity because the real promised land is not Israel. The real promised land is heaven. And heaven and earth are going to meet for all of eternity, and that's where we're going to be. And so as we get more and more of him, we're preparing ourselves to step into eternity. So this is the group that he's talking. He's saying there are these groups. You're either in Egypt or in the wilderness or you're preparing to walk into the promised land. Which one are you today? And he says this. He goes, 
In distress you called, I delivered you, you answered me from the secret place of thunder, I tested you in the waters of Meribah. We see this connection right back to the time in the wilderness, the thunder. That's what Sinai was, right? So Moses goes up onto the hill, and there's thunder and lightning, and he's meeting with God, and he comes down with the law. This is how God encountered the Israelites through Moses. This is education through encounter. Now, Meribah is kind of the other extreme. Meribah is in, in education through silence or apparent neglect. So what had happened was the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, and they go, we're kind of thirsty. Can we empathize with that right now? Right? There's water out there. You can go get one. Okay? They were thirsty, and they started grumbling. They didn't go to Moses and say, hey, you know, Moses, we need some water. They started with each other, and they started complaining, and they started grumbling. Then they went to Aaron, and then finally went to Moses, and God goes, Moses, I hear their complaints. Strike the rock. And he strikes the rock, and water pours out. And this rock he named Strife or dispute, which is what Meribah means. Now, it wouldn't be that big a deal, except for a few verses later, same thing happens. So the Israelites were walking around, and, and if you were to go where they had wandered, you'd be like, yep, that's the rock of strife and complaining. And this one over here, yep, we named that one strife and complaining. And we walked over here, and this one, there's, there's like five rocks named Meribah. You see a trend developing here? Now, the last one that's recorded is from Numbers 20, and this is where Moses doesn't go to God, and he's just like, I'm done with these people, and he hits the rock on his own, and water comes out. So God, Moses doesn't have superpowers. God still honored the fact that he struck the rock. Moses just didn't ask for permission. And this is that testing. It's that, that time when the Lord says, I'm going to pull back from you. Are you going to trust me and do what I say, or are you going to demand your rights? Are you going to demand your way? Because ultimately, this grumbling was against the Lord. And the Israelites, time and again, always did this. Lord, why you're not doing it the way I want. Do it my way. Do we really want God listening to our wisdom, or do we want to listen to his wisdom? So God had shown who he is by pulling them out of Egypt. And then he showed them how he wants them to interact by the wilderness. Trust in me. I will provide the manna. I will provide the quail. I will provide the water. And isn't this what we need? We need to remember. You know, our communion tables say, do this in remembrance. In remembrance. We need to remember. That's why we gather and we do communion monthly, is to remind ourselves. Because we so easily forget. So God's provides the salvation. He frees us from our sins. This is the good news. And then this psalm pauses. We get that selah. The selah just simply means reflect. I think the point here is think about what God has done. Think about what God has done in your life, where he brought you out of. And then now he moves into the next part. Verse 8, 9, and 10. This is God's warning. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. That word admonish means to warn sternly. And we, and we see this, this is really echoing the Ten Commandments. See, the, the people, when they would get together at the tabernacle and the feast of the trumpets, these two feasts, they'd read through the entire book of Deuteronomy out loud. 
And so Deuteronomy is all through this psalm. And we see it right here. Deuteronomy uh, verses 9 and 10, we see the Ten Commandments. No other God before me. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Open your mouth and I will fill it. That makes me think of the, uh, the little birds. We went and visited Kathy, and Kathy has a, um, a bird's nest right on her patio, and it's got a bunch of baby birds in there. And it looks like nothing's in there until the mama bird comes up, and all of a sudden there's four mouths, and they're just you know, squeaking and putting their mouths up, and mom's putting food in each of them. And that's how the Lord wants us. He wants us hungry coming to him because he's the one that provides the food. And then trusting in the fact that he's going to bring it. See, this is what the Israelites were struggling with in the wilderness. They were saying, you're not going to provide, Lord. And he says, yes, I am. Don't you remember? Remember. Remember. And then we get verses 11 and 12. These verses are kind of scary. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. This is God's pain, God's pain in the fact they would not follow him. Probably the better way to translate this is not that Israel would not submit to me, but Israel does not want to submit to me. There's a, there's a not wanting God at all in this situation. The people have completely rejected, and they said, you know, we're going to listen to what we think, because we think we know. It reminds me of Romans 1, where it says, God gave them over to their lusts and their, their, their temptations. In Judges, which I've been reading through in my own personal study time, uh, they, they constantly the, the Israelites turned back. And there's this one line in Judges 10 where, where they come to God and they say, God, help us. And God goes, what about those gods you were worshiping before? Where are they? Why don't you go talk to them? Are they busy? What are they doing? And, and they go, we know we, we, we went to the wrong thing. You're the real God. And then in the next chapter, they're going after those gods again. And isn't that what we see? One of the worst things possible for us is for God to leave us alone with our own hearts. Our hearts, if left to themselves, will pursue anything but him. And honestly, this makes the mantra, the anthem of our culture, which is follow your heart, the worst advice on the planet. I mean, that's the sermon that's getting preached in every single movie, every single song, every single TikTok. If you don't know what that is, ask a young person. Instagram, it's getting on all the television shows. Everything is just do you. Just take care of you. Follow your heart. That's the worst advice ever. But when God remakes our hearts, now we're talking. Now we're cooking. Because he removes our sin and he puts joy in there that we can now pursue him rightly. See, God was withholding food and water from them to say, hey, you're free, but will you trust me? You're free to do whatever you want. Isn't that what I just said? You are free. You know that you're free. What are you going to do with that freedom? It's not just enough just to be free. It's what are you going to do now? You've been freed. Are you going to follow me or are you going to follow you and return to the same thing. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, which is about why people don't go to heaven, writes this, there are two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. 
Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss heaven. But those who, those who seek and those who knock, the door will be open. What he's saying is there's two groups of people. One group of people says, Lord, I'll do what you say. And God says, okay. And the other group says, Lord, I want to do my own thing. And God says, okay, see how that works out for you. And that's the two groups. If we want something from God more than we want God, we're in the second group. We're not in the group that's going to him. Because ultimately, we don't want that. We don't want just God's gifts. We want God. Because the worst thing possible is for God to give us over to our desires if they're anything else but him. You think about it, he gives us what we desire. If we desire to not have him, he's going to go, okay, you cannot have me. God, I want you. Okay, you can have me. This one over here is a terrible place to be in. This one over here is the place of blessing. And this is what the final section of this psalm deals with. Verses 13 through 16. This is a call to repentance. A call to repent lest you forget and forfeit the blessing. A call to repent lest you forfeit the blessing. Verse 13. Oh, that my people would listen to me that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. This is the, the, the hunger and thirsting. God wants to step in. God wants to step in and be their blessing. Look at that. Oh, that my people would listen to me. God's not some abstract thing out there going, I'm playing with the stars and oh yeah, you guys liked me. No, he's involved with us. He passionately wants us to choose him because he knows choosing him is the best thing for us. He is moved and affected by us. And yet, even when we go in opposite direction, he is ready and waiting to say, here, honey from the rock, I am ready to bless you. It really is amazing that we have to be reminded to praise God because the entire Bible lays out all the infinite reasons why we should, but yet we constantly forget and just like with ancient Israel, many of us choose to ignore God's claims on our lives. I'll let you take care of whether I go to heaven or hell, but I'm not going to let you tell me what to do today. And that mindset is exactly what the Israelites were dealing with. So what does repent mean? Repent's one of those churchy words. It means to go a different direction. It's as simple as that. It means to turn and go a different way. Repentance is the act of doing that. Spurgeon says it like this, and I think he nails it. We do not repent in order to be saved, but we repent because we're saved. We do not loathe sin and therefore hope to be saved, but because we are saved, we therefore loathe sin and turn from it. So when we're saved, we don't want anything to do with our past life. We want to turn and go a different direction, unlike those in the wilderness who wanted to go back. So let's do a thought experiment. Think about these messages from these different people in the Bible and see if they match up. So when Noah, his message from the steps of the ark was it, you have untapped potential. God wants to make most, more of you. Or Amos, when he goes to the high priest, did he get in trouble for saying, God has something good for you? Or Jeremiah, who was thrown into the pit. Was he thrown in the pit for preaching, you know, Jesus, your life coach, he says you're just a little broken. Or how about Daniel in the lion's den? God has something greater for you. Your best life is now. Or John the Baptist. 
When he was forced, when, when was he, was, he was in the wilderness and then he was beheaded for what he was preaching, was he saying, you know, don't settle for anything less than your dreams? Or how about the two prophets in Revelation when they come and they are killed for preaching? Did they turn, were they saying, God wants to turn your setback into a comeback? Now, I've chosen all of those because those are very popular phrases of what Christianity is all about. They're all over Instagram. They're all over Facebook. They're all over the place. But that's not what each of those guys were. And if you didn't know who those guys were, that's fine. Keep reading your Bible. You'll find them and you'll go, oh, that's what Pastor John meant. But these people, every single one of them was persecuted and killed because they said one thing. They said, repent. They said, the direction you're going is wrong. It's a sin. Go the other direction. No one is crucified. No one is persecuted for saying, you know what? Let me come in there and tweak your life and you'll live a better life. You know, if you would just, just see your setbacks as a comeback, that's not what the Bible preaches. The Bible instead preaches, you're on the wrong path. Go the other way. Or you're going on the right path, but you keep looking back at that path. Stop. Get your eyes on Christ. This is the picture. And we need this continually because we are always waffling between those who have our eyes in the promised land and those who have their eyes looking back to Egypt. Spurgeon says, repentance is continual. Believers repent until their dying day. A Christian can never leave off repenting. Why? Because they never leave off sinning. Now, verses 15 and 16 tell us what God wants from us. Those who hate the Lord would cringe towards him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of wheat, and with honey from the rock, I would be satisfied. So he's saying, those who hate him, their fate is forever. We don't want that. Instead, we want to turn to him. And not only, yes, we get heaven, but we also get fed now the finest wheat, the sweetest honey. This is the response that Asaph's going for. He wants us to go, yes, you're right. God will take care of it. God will take care of me. We need to latch on to him. Puritan John Rapp said, in the sin in sin, pleasure passes and sorrow remains. But in repentance, sorrow passes and pleasure remains forever. God pours the oil of gladness, of joy onto broken hearts. See, he says, I'll give you honey. He actually means even more than that. Look at what Isaiah 55 says. It says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in my rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. He's saying, open your mouth. I will fill it with the finest wheat, the best honey. And guess what that is? It's me. That's what Christ is saying. I want to satisfy you. I want to fill you. Repentance is not something God demands before he'll take you back. So you could just write it off. It's instead a description of what it is like to come back. Those two go together. This psalm turns the prayers of the people into a, on their head where now God is the one saying, come back to me. It's an interesting image, isn't it? We've been lamenting all these times about, God, why have you forsaken me? Now God goes, no, no, you're the one that's been forsaking me. See, there's always these two sides to the relationship. 
Our relationship with God is complex. But one thing that does not change is God's heart towards us. So rejoice, remember, repent. We're going to add one more R. Repeat. This is, this is the Christian life. This is the reason why that we have feasts. This is the reason why we are celebrating holidays is so that we continually do this. But see, here's the thing. If we leave off any of those R's, Kyle, would you go ahead and put those up on the screen for me? If we leave off any of these R's, we're in trouble. If we say, okay, I'm not going to rejoice, but I'm going to remember and repent, we've got this cold, lifeless Christianity that doesn't, that's not attractive to anybody. All I do is remember God's promises and then I repent. All I do is, there's no joy. That's not the way it's supposed to be. If we decide as a disciple of Christ, we're going to rejoice and repent, we have this incorrect view of God, thinking that he takes sin lightly. And our joy now becomes very superficial because we don't remember who God is and what he's done. If we rejoice and remember but we don't repent, our joy is stilted because our joy comes from the fact that we're not in our sins anymore. And that repentance, if we don't repent, it's on the path to Egypt, not on the path to the promised land. And ultimately, we have to do this over and over again because we forget so easily. There's a reason why the, the Apostle Paul would have his church meet over and over again after he led him to Christ. Why didn't he just say, well, you, you're a follower of Christ now. You're good. You don't need to worry about it. You're a believer. You don't got to do it. You're a disciple. You're fine. He says, no, we got to continually meet because we forget. We go back to that old way. We want to go back to Egypt. But if we think about it instead of, uh, of a line, if we started thinking of it as a circle, right? Every time we rejoice and then we repent, and remember, then we repent, and then we do it again. We rejoice, remember, repent. We're spiraling where? We're spiraling towards God. We're getting closer and closer to him each and every time we do this. What a better, there's not a better picture out there of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So today, I pray that you would join with me in repeating this, joyfully remembering, repenting, and then more joy. Let's be known for that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word. Thank you for the, the psalm, Lord, that you gave Asaph so many years ago that now can speak right into our lives today. Lord, I pray that you would bless us. Thank you for these saints enduring the heat and enduring somebody yelling at them. But Lord, I pray that you would use this time we have right now to stir up a joy in our hearts, Lord. Help us through these songs remember who you are. Help us to repent for the things we need to. And then, Lord, fill us with more joy. Lord, keep your promise because you are the promise-keeping God. In your name, amen.